welcome to the Grounded Families podcast with me, Julia Goodall, psychologist and coach. This is a podcast for all families navigating life, love and relationships. We delve into our stories and experiences of family and how these go on to shape and change who we are. I'm so happy to have you here. Hello and welcome to today's episode. My guest today is the lovely Sass Petherick. She's a coach, writer, and founder of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy, which I joined last year. Sass has become a real mentor to me, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. We talk about all things growing up in New Zealand, um, as well as her lifelong journey into her self-doubt work and this body of work that she's created. We also talk about collective grief in response to the pandemic and how this will continue to shape us all. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Sass Petherick, the wonderful kind of mentor to me, but also master <laughs> self-belief coach, writer, podcaster. And more recently, um, you've started the Self-Belief um, Coaching Academy quite a list. I have. Oh, goodness. It's so good to be here, Julia. I'm really excited to chat with you. I adore you. I have so much respect for your work. I think this is going to be super fun. Thank you, Sats. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. Um, how are you doing? I just want to check in. Yeah, um, great question. And of course, I'm going to answer that really honestly. <laughs> I'm okay. I have good days and I have days where I think, yeah, I'm kind of rocking lockdown and pandemic, schmandemic, it's not that different from my normal life, which is pretty quiet. But um, I'm also just struck by how much grief we're all holding. Mm. Mm. And because you and I both live in the year, but we're from the Southern Hemisphere, how far away we are from, from our families. And I think that's one thing that this whole experience has really taught me is the world isn't that small if you have mm. to get across it. Yeah. Um, I really felt I really felt that as well. That for so long it's felt, you know, we can get anywhere and you can connect with people and by Zoom and but this has really made you feel like well no, <laughs> you don't live anywhere near and, close. And enough. I miss I miss like tech the tactileness of having actual breathing humans mm. I can smell, <laughs> you know. Totally. Um <laughs> even though I'm super grateful for the for the technology, it feels quite magical to have it. But mm. I'm still really craving yearning longing for proper interactions and I'm quite a touchy person so oh, me too <laughs> a bit of a hugger so yeah. <laughs> me too. I have to constantly rein myself in in COVID I'm always apologizing I'm, almost, I'm sorry almost, um, yeah and, and I almost feel sorry for the people I'm going to be hugging first like <laughs> I go Oh, I totally agree. I, I'm also about the texture of people and I, I miss that so, so much. It's just, it's not the same um, yeah. being on Zoom with people and video calls. And, and initially it felt like that was enough, but I think because it's gone on for so long, it just feels like, well, no, this, it's not enough. I can't do yeah. this indefinitely. Completely. Yeah. yeah. And we're designed to be around each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So when is the last time you were um, back in New Zealand? Gosh, about six years ago. Oh, gosh. Okay. it's a long six time. Six seven years ago. Yeah. Okay. My husband went back last year. He's from New Zealand as well because mm. his dad isn't very well. So that's oh, sort of no. putting an extra, an extra colour onto our um, experience. But um, that was a faff because he was here to quarantine for two weeks. And oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, okay. but so, I'm super proud of New Zealand as well. I mean, they're, they've done an amazing job of yeah. trying to keep people safe. Um, mm. So I think it's it's all just both and at the moment. Exactly. Both and is exhausting to hold, though. It sure is. It sure <laughs> is. Oh, Sass, could you give us a little bit of background about who you are, all about the background, so we understand the foreground? Um, and if you could tell us, yeah, just a bit about who you are and where you're from, or we know now in New Zealand. Um, but, yeah. yeah, feel free to dive yeah, in. Yeah, I, um, I was born in New Zealand in 1973, so I'm 47 now. Okay. Um, and grew up in this very idyllic place 
and I'm a first generation immigrant. So my parents were from the northeast of England and they went to New Zealand expecting an island paradise. And I think found some of that. Um, They were very young when they immigrated. They had me very quickly. And I think they were a bit stunned and in shock at how different their life became. Mm. Um, And they both worked like most of our friends and family. They both worked at the local psychiatric hospital, which was the main employer and had um, a whole lot of expats had come over to work there. So there was this kind of little England that that Uh was formed out of that community. And because we grew up in such a small town, there was no privacy. There was no sense of you know, you, you, there's an expectation that that would be enough mm. for a lot of people. And New Zealand is quite, um, there are a lot of small towns like that, right, where the local industry becomes kind of the hub of everything. Okay. Um, and so growing up in that was both wonderful and I always felt like I didn't quite belong there. Okay. In what way? I think... Because my grandparents, who also lived in New Zealand, um, they had immigrated as well. So we had this kind of generational immigration thing going on. Yeah. Um, They always talked, particularly my grandmother, who I was very close to growing up, always talked about England as um, not not romantically, but there was a a nostalgia for it and there was um, a lot of of longing for that, missing home. Mm -hmm. I remember as a kid being sent um, what we called blueies, which were these old blue airmail envelopes. Oh, yes, I remember those. Okay. Yeah. Those those folded up ones. It's like one piece of paper, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And my... um, my mum's father, my granddad, Mac, he would send me blueies with little cartoons and little stories. And he was, he was a very special man. But um, I think I had this, just this idea that I wasn't in the right place. Okay. And I was um, quite a sick kid. I've had a heart condition my whole life and I had open heart surgery when I was four. And because of that, um, I could read from a very young age and I sort of fell into books. That was my escape. Mm. Um, And so I was reading, you know, Enid Blyton, you know, to start with and and really kind of falling into that romantic vision of an England that I don't think has ever actually existed. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) absolutely. That old England, Um, yeah, that exists in people's minds. Gosh, I relate relate so much to that sense of being that sort of expatriate feel um, because my dad's family is English um, and so we grew up with really similar feeling, also in a really tiny town, um, and that same sort of sense of longing for something you actually don't know. Um, yeah. And we always spoke about England with such reverence and such, it was like a homeland of sorts um, yeah. in terms of music and the sort of books we listened to and read. And it was, yeah, I really relate to that. It's a really powerful thing, I think. It is, and it, and it I think... Also, the other big thing that happened in my early childhood, because I know I know that's where we're going, <laughs> is that my mum and dad had a baby brother, um, Paul, who died. He was only four or five days old when he when he died. Gosh. Okay. And at that time, mum has had since told me. Um, She's also passed, but we had a conversation a few years before she died. And she said that the the thing that they said was, you just need to go home and try again. Like there was no Mm. capacity in the days that after he'd passed for Mm. to really address what was going on. No one knew how to hold that in 1975. Wow. Um, And so I've realised very recently, actually, that... I grew up in a family that were grieving and did not know it or acknowledge it or talk mm. about it ever until I was well into my thirties. Uh, and it was such a, it was like, like reminding myself that that was the context weapon. It was like a piece 
kind of got put into place for me and it just helped me to have so much empathy for my parents who were in their early 20s at the time but also the way that they tried to kind of cope with that without really coping with it yeah because there was no outlet for it Mm. so I grew up in a home that no no words for it Mm. no words and no um I think no permission to just acknowledge what had happened like to really go this is a profound lifelong loss Mm. and there's no, you know, like, so, you know, my parents use very different coping mechanisms. Neither of, neither or any of them were particularly healthy. And so I had the sense of chaos all the time. I Mm. kind of, there was no real grownups around for me. Um, and so just recognizing that, you know, and it's only really been in the last year where I've gone, oh, I grew up in a house that was full of grief. Mm. I always thought there was something wrong with me. And now I realized there was just something wrong. Mm. But my little you. self was like, mm. I, need to, I need to fix this or, or do stuff. And so I became very good at making jokes and doing good things and you know, helping out. And it all kind of meant that I became this little adult very at a very young age. Mm. And um, I didn't really have a lot of that free spirited childhood where you just get to play and create and you don't have to worry about the rules because I was constantly mm. worrying about what could go wrong. Okay. And checking in with your parents and seeing where they were at. And that's what they needed from me. Yeah, absolutely. How old were you when Paul was born? I was three. Oh, you were three. Okay, gosh. Yeah. And with the kind of backdrop of you being unwell, I imagine like the tension just feels sort of palpable just thinking about it and what that must be like. Yeah. Yeah. And then my baby brother was born less than a year after Paul died. So they really did follow the instructions. (laughs) Um, Gosh, that's... (laughs) But um, mum had postnatal depression, totally understandably, with with my youngest brother. Yeah. And um, again, it wasn't it wasn't really talked about. It was just cope. Mm. And of course, they were working. The irony that strikes me now: all of my parents' friends were mental health professionals. Gosh, none know. of them talked about it, and none of them said anything or intervened that you were aware. Not of. to my knowledge. Yeah. Gosh, and it wasn't it wasn't really until my mum decided to retrain as a psychiatric nurse about when I was about 12 or 13, she started okay. that process. Um, she found this incredibly supportive group of women friends who are still in touch with me, you know, nearly 20 years after she has died, you know, those kinds of friends. Yeah. Um, Those women. (laughs) Those wonderful. Um, And those women just kind of scooped her up and I think really normalized a whole lot of stuff. Okay. um, Around what mum was feeling. Yeah. That you'd never spoken about most likely. Um, No. Gosh, I think that there's something so powerful again about the social construct that goes behind that. So like you said, despite being trained um, to work with people in mental health and just not being able to apply that to yourself um, around because we don't talk about these things and this is too dangerous and this is for somebody else. This is not something that happens to us. Um, which, yeah, again, I really relate to. I think Mm -hmm. you can know things in your head, but um, Mm -hmm to connect with them is something totally different. Absolutely. And, you know, I even find this myself, right? Like, (laughs) like the, and and for years, I think I thought because I work specifically around self-doubt and the impact of self-doubt that, it was somehow not okay for me to experience that. Like I had that sort of story in my mind, like I need to conquer this so I can show people the way. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And I was very quickly disabused of any notion that that was going to be happening. Um, (laughs) This doesn't happen to me, but I've noticed it with other people. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I relate to that. (laughs) Totally. But I think it's just so much healthier to say, hey, I'm human and... Mm. I have this, I have this too. And you know what? I've got some ideas that might help. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that type of approach 
it just feels much more compassionate. Absolutely. Um, and it doesn't set an unrealistic expectation for anybody. Mm. <laughs> I think it's wildly comfortable and comforting to know that the people you're working with are human beings because otherwise you just feel broken and sad all on your own, <laughs> you know? Exactly. It's too yeah. much. And like, yeah. yeah, like there's some answer that you're not getting, some Ex- manual that you haven't read yet. Yeah. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So this is yeah. also kind of the roots of all of your self-doubt work. Um and in some ways you've been yes, living this your entire life. Exactly. And I think um, I turned that sense of being the coper in the family, the little, mm. the little adult, um, into being super self-sufficient and self-reliant because yeah. there was a lot of chaos, because everything felt a bit uncertain. And I'd never quite trusted that my parents would just be there mm. in a way that I needed them to be. I couldn't ask for what I needed. And they, mm. you know, it was parenting in the 70s and 80s. Yes. <laughs> it was a bit of a, a wild ride. A bit of a lottery. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel, I fear it's still a lottery. For sure. sure. But, Um, oh gosh. But yeah. And, and, and I think I, I turned that into, oh, the only person I can count on is me. Mm. And that was um, even more reinforced uh, as I moved into my teen years. And I went back to the UK with my mother uh, for three months and lived here and traveled with her and okay. saw my family and did this kind of like at, at the age of 14, you know, wow. I remember it, the day that we were out of New Zealand, it was Black Monday. It was when the share market crashed in 1987 oh, and gosh. I watched Judy dancing on the plane. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's a real formative moment. <laughs> it was this, yeah. And the King's Cross fire, that this massive fire that happened at, in a, underground station um happened while we were in London like we had been in the station like the day before oh wow um so these are just like this incredibly poignant moment my life and and the world it just felt like incredible is now in my life like (laughs) things are gonna change (laughs) yeah and and I returned home after those three months utterly changed like I just thought oh I could, this could be my life. I could live here because yes. I have this this magical passport. Mm. And when I got back to New Zealand, I I guess I could see, oh, I'm I'm changed, but it's the it's the same. And the kids in my class were like, "Who do you think you are?" Because mm. with your worldly experience, the island, you know. Yes. Um, and I can completely understand now, like the the. The context was totally there for me to be bullied, um, mm. and that's that's what happened. It was, it was like it was really bad. Like mm. um, just attacks, social anxiety, all of that worry just got amplified in this incredibly profound way. And I had nowhere to go with it because I I didn't feel like I could tell anyone and speak to your parents and, or um, teachers or anybody. Mm. No, and the kids were up around, you know, when and where and how and um, no desire to be caught or, yeah. you know, it wasn't, they weren't doing it for attention, I don't think. Yeah. So, so there was this six-month period where at 14 I just thought my whole world has kind of ended and mm. that was a really difficult period. And then it all came, came out because I hadn't been going to school. I'd been handing in all my schoolwork, okay. but I hadn't been going to school. Where were you going? So, I, so you were well, setting I, off for school? I set off for school, okay. waited until the school bus left, waited until mum and dad had gone to work and home, and I just have so much tenderness for my little self. I set the kitchen table up like a classroom. Oh, gosh. diligently through the day because I didn't – it was the exam year the following year, and I realised how important that was. Mm. Um, but it all kind of came out and mum and dad uh, supported me to go to a, to a new school, which I I 
I think I've thrived there as much as I could, given the circumstances. Okay. Gosh, what a scary lesson as well to have something so life-changing and expansive and then to be slammed down for it and to say, no, we're not doing that again. There will be no expensive growth here. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, to this day, like the flavor of self-doubt that I have is all about protecting me from disappointment. Okay. Gosh. Right. So anything that I get excited about, my self-doubt comes on and goes, don't do that. You'll probably get disappointed. Mm. And then I kind of hold myself back. And temperance. So I think it's so rooted in those experiences. Mm. I'm just so fascinated at, again, the power and strength of these experiences that we have in childhood and adolescence and even early adulthood, which I still feel like we should consider childhood. I feel like until you're about 30, we're still a child and um, and not in a patronizing way, but I just feel like these, these experiences are so formative and so huge. And if we don't have anyone to process them with um, Mm. and society doesn't process them particularly well, then what happens to them? You know, they kind of solidify and stay. Exactly. And, and, you know, I work with a lot of people who are parents and who one of their big fears is I don't want to pass on my self-doubt to Mm. my kids. And, you know, how can I protect them from this? How can I kind of Mm. save them from this experience? And I'm, I've sort of come to the conclusion that, you know, we're all wired differently and we can't really know what the impact of any instance is going Mm. to have on Aaron, you know, on any individual, we can't Mm. really predict that. But I think just having that safe place to go to talk about it, having someone that we feel like it's okay, whatever happens to us, they're just going to be there. There isn't mm. a time or, an, or a, an event or an action we can take that would render us unacceptable to them. Mm. Just having that security, I think, provides a, a place of safety that... Mm. Self-doubt is always trying to protect us from risk. Like it just says all the time, don't do that, you might hurt yourself. Mm. And so we hold ourselves back, but it's we're holding ourselves back from, from a perceived risk. And what I found is that the more folks have a place where they can talk about those risks, talk about the, their fears and vulnerabilities, the more they can have a perspective on the likelihood of that risk or even some, you know, some strategies for how they might manage if the risk actually happens. Yes. And so that kind of approach, I think, frees us up a little bit from Mm. we can't protect anyone, even ourselves, from the things that we worry about, but we can resource ourselves with with humans that we need and with um, ideas and our own kind of resilience, our own inner resources and um, healthy ways of, of dealing with those instances that just really minimize the impact that that self-doubt can have, which can be really debilitating for some of us. Absolutely. I think I'm just listening as you speak and, and so struck by that the answer is connection and all of these things is being having somebody to connect with and somebody to speak to and that safe place to return to, to say, Oh, look what I've done. Or look what I've said, or look who I am in this moment. Or look what I'm holding back from. And it feels so tiny when I look at it, but I just can't bring myself to do that. (laughs) The threshold. And also, yeah, about how you're saying it's so freeing because I think there is something about protecting yourself from disappointing other people or damaging other people like you say it's not wanting to pass these stories on um which can be just utterly paralyzing because then you think mm. oh it's yeah. like before lunchtime and I've maybe committed some mothering sins you know you can just really yeah. get bugged down in that and I think it's such yeah. a human way of just connecting with saying there will be mess and there will be pain but these are the ways that we can survive it well, and, and, live and with I it. think just recognizing that in the mess and pain we can still find some meaning. We can still mm. figure it out. Like I, yeah. and I really, um, I personally kind of resist and feel a bit repelled from the life coaching mantras of, you know, everything is a gift. Cause actually I think some things are just shit and yes. there's no doubt about it. <laughs> um, but it's like, so can you just be with that? Like, mm. I think what can happen is 
we then judge ourselves for how we feel about it. We think, oh, I should, I should be finding a gift or a lesson in this, or I shouldn't feel the way I feel. I should be able to do the things that I want to be able to do. This is, you know, so we pile judgment and rejection of ourselves and abandoning of ourselves on top of the shitty thing that's happened. Too much. No wonder. No wonder we feel a bit lost, you know. (laughs) Turning around in circles. I'm also really fascinated by that as well about, um, I was talking to someone about this recently around, so I have always found that it'll feel like a leap, but I'll I'll get there. But um, I've always found the, kind of memorializing of war really troubling and really bizarre um and we grew up with it as well but just not in the same ways we have here in the UK um and I found it we kind of kept our kids home from school on those days because I just felt um kind of quite sickened by it and that mm. we are teaching such young children these glorious days of war um and then recently when we came out of that first or second I forget lockdown and I started to feel better and I noticed that I started to have thoughts about um kind of romantic thoughts about what lockdown was like (laughs) no (laughs) stop that immediately but I, I imagine that there will be some memorializing of of 2020 and this year because good things have come out of it but also there's just been sort of tragedy upon tragedy and I wonder whether we have to be more conscious about speaking about the things we want to memorialize and the things we want, like you say, making meaning out of the shitty things Um, Mm -hmm. and to be really conscious about that. So what are the things that we'll take? What are the things that we'll let go um, and completely disregard? But what are the things we'll memorialize? Um, And I'm fascinated by that. So what, when we don't know yet, but um, I'd really like to keep that in my mind and to think, you know, Mm -hmm. not to glorify these last two years, but to what will we take? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's such an interesting idea. I, I'm with you. I've always found that whole. Um, I don't know. In New Zealand, we have the ANZAC. Oh um, yes, I know. Day. Yeah. So yeah. Australian New Zealand Army Corps. It's very. You know, it's a very kind of national pride. We don't really do national pride in mm-hmm. the antipodes, but um, but I think that comes quite close to it. And Absolutely. when I first came over to the UK, it was the 90th year since World War I and this battle in Gallipoli in Turkey where New Zealand and Australia held a coastline <clears throat> for a number of days or weeks. And... Um, it has been kind of glorified, you know, that that mm. that it is this thing. And the idea of travelling to a World War One war site was did not fill me with joy. Did not it held no real interest to me. But I was travelling at the time with a number of um, Australians and Kiwis, and we decided, yeah, let's go, let's do it. We'll do the stay up all night and do the dawn service. They have this big thing, yeah, and. The thing that so moved me about that experience and has profoundly changed the way I think about these collective grief experiences, which I think war is, which I think COVID is becoming. Um, 9-11 was the same for anyone who was around in that time. Even if you didn't live live in the Mm. States. Yeah. It profound, the the shockwaves of that were profound and and long-lasting. But there is a memorial at Anzac Cove, and it strikes me as utterly bizarre that the nation that was invaded, Turkey, named the site after the soldiers that took that piece of land. Like, it's called Anzac Cove. Gosh. And that just struck me as so bizarre. And there is this letter that was written by Ataturk, who was the Turkish... Um, leader at the time who said, you know, your sons died on our soil. And gosh, that tears me up. Yeah. So they're our son too. Mm. Oh gosh. And I just thought that kind of compassion and forgiveness, like imagine if we aimed that at ourselves, Mm. but also at, you know, the, the folks that don't understand what we might be going through. Like I think about a hundred, close to a hundred thousand people in this country have died as a result of COVID. Mm. That's at least 
that many families, five times that many people have been profoundly affected by that loss. And for some of us, COVID has meant homeschooling and trying to manage self-employment or working from home with homeschooling and how many Zoom links can one house handle at a time. And for others, it has been bedside vigils. Yeah. And for others, it has just been a lot of loneliness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of us have varying degrees of that in between. And I just feel like we can't even know what other people are going through, what they're holding. But there is something about that sense of this this all happened on our watch. Mm. And so it's ours to hold. All of, all of our watch. Yeah. Exactly. Like the yeah. both end of it. Yes. You know, it's, yeah. it's awful and sad and difficult and so stressful for so many folks. Mm. And yet you know, no one person can possibly hold that, but collectively mm-hmm. there is something we that we could do. Yeah. You know? Gosh, Sass, it's so, it is just so powerful and so heavy at the same time. It feels sort of both enlivening and, and freezing yeah. at one time. And I, I wonder if that's also part of that sort of war memorial is that we are connected in something, whereas before you may not have been connected to I just think of soldiers coming from all over the world, having probably very little in common and then to be Mm. united by this one thing and this one single purpose. And I wonder if even the stories that came out of the wars that, you know, the, the football game between the German soldiers and the English soldiers, like, it's like everyone recognizes this is a totally futile, mad endeavor. Yeah. And and we are connected in it. You know, absolutely. Yeah, I really, I feel like I, I really get that so much more having come through this year, um, or these two years, and, and that power. I mean, I, I don't celebrate Anzac Day. I'm South African, but I had um, really close um, Australian friends when I first lived in the UK, and I remember going to some like seedy. Uh, like what's it called the red back or something and there was a we've all been there oh. <laughs> and it was for Anzac Day and I just cried yeah. I just cried as yeah. everyone had their silence and I thought and I you know they all teased me and said oh my goodness not even Australia not even from New Zealand and weeping the loudest but I there was something in that collective experience of things and these are all yeah children um, or grandchildren of these soldiers and it was just so so powerful so you know I can also see like the link between that homesickness for something that we both grew up with but it was for a place or a time that we hadn't been part of yeah and and how that kind of connects it too I, I know when I first came to the UK um I went through a, a, my mum passed away and then my relationship at the time fell apart and it just felt like all I wanted was to be around people that sounded like me, that looked like me, that understood my memories, that mm. that could reminisce with me, knew the music, all of that. Mm. Um, so there was this, we kind of clung to each other a bit and it was, no one talked about homesickness. <laughs> Everyone else, you know, how long have you been here? Yeah. <laughs> and where are you from back home? Yeah. No one really talks about and isn't this mad that we've decided to live 12,000 miles from home and mm. we're, everything's upside down here. The seasons are all wrong and the time of year is, isn't the same. And it just, it just strikes me that in those moments of a real change and uncertainty and when I guess our self-doubt is likely to be at its strongest Mm. we look for like who who's going to get me here Mm. who understands this how how can I feel connected to something to someone Mm. and I I, it strikes me that we're talking about that in different guises absolutely and I suppose that the very sort of shadow self of that is like othering and racism. I guess that's that we're talking about the light version of that and that it is such a human thing to do um, is, yeah, to seek out people you connect with and and imagine you understand, yeah, Mm. Um, and Mm. then to distance yourself from from things that feel uncertain. 
So, gosh, yeah, it's a tricky. Yeah, I guess the thing, isn't it? it when I recognise that that uncertainty is within me, I probably am more likely to seek out connection. And when I feel like that uncertainty is outside of me, I can shun away, shy mm. away from it or want to shun it or, yes. um, yeah, I want to move away from it. Yeah, I think that's a, yeah, a really important distinction to make. Gosh, um, do you know one thing Sasa really wanted to speak to you about is something also talking about like normalizing conversations is that while I think it is gross and inappropriate to ask people why they don't have children, so I don't want to do that, but I also yeah. really think that those conversations are important in the sense of there is no model and there is no um, norm around yeah, sure. having these conversations. So w- could you yeah, go to some of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so what was what are the, some of the things that your life is because you don't have children? That is such a great question. Well, at the moment, it's free from homeschooling. <laughs> and, <laughs> so um, <wise>. but, <laughs> but it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think in a lot of the work I do is really about what stories are we telling ourselves? Mm. And I think there is a possible story here about, well, I, I'm my husband and I, who we both decided that having children or having a family wasn't going to look like kids. Yes. Um, we decided that quite early on, but it's a, it was an ongoing conversation for many years. Okay. But I guess we could tell ourselves a story of all the things that we're missing. And I think we've probably decided that that isn't particularly helpful to us. Mm -mm. Um, And it's been really interesting in that we have lots of children in our lives. Our closest friends are all breeders. So (laughs) we have kids in our lives. We have nieces and nephews. And um, in some ways, I think we actually aren't kid-free in the sense that it's not like we don't have children in our world yeah but what we do both have I think is this is a is an expanded space to explore who we are as individuals and as a couple yeah so I think all the major decisions that we've made in our relationship which is you know coming up to 14 years long they've always been about what what would be the next thing? Like what would be exciting for us? We've we've both gone back to school and and completed master's degrees. We've bought a house and saved up for a house for 10 years, bought the house, then renovated the house, moved in just before lockdown. Oh man, you really did scream into that just before. (laughs) Yes, there was gravel sort of spraying (sighs) behind us as we got in. Um, But yes, so... So we've, I think we have, um, we have a lot of time and quiet, mm-hmm. which I guess I identify as a bit more extroverted than introverted, but I do really like my own thinking time. Okay. I really do feel energized by time alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ash is definitely introverted. And so we have this kind of quiet, this space, we get, we have a lot of interests on our own and together. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a fairy family, so we have a little dog and we have cats. So we have these things that connect us to each other. But I think we just have more space and time perhaps than a, than a parent mm-hmm. does, certainly in the early years, to really explore like what makes us work what what's exciting to us what's interesting to us and we just have that available to us yeah so our um I imagine that for some folks looking in that they'd, they'd be thinking what do you do with all that time you know no, I'm not one of those <laughs> folks <laughs> but, but it's you know we 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 do um we do a lot of things, but it doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I think having grown up as a really anxious kid, I'm all about like creating gentle space for myself mm-hmm. and just allowing that to be peaceful 
And the more that I kind of bring my little self out into the world and really kind of in some ways give her the childhood that she didn't have, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, play and what can we do that's just fun. And Mm -hmm. like in the last few months of lockdown, I, I've always wanted to paint, but never, I've always had some idea that I'd just be really crap at it, mm-hmm. um, which was inevitably true as you start anything. So I just bought myself a set of watercolours and have been playing with that. I've seen that and beautiful. It, I think if that's a starting point, yes. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I think that's the thing I'm realising is that I have given myself permission to do it for fun and Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of things in my life that I just do for fun like there's usually a point to it or an outcome or a goal I'm quite goal oriented Mm. um so you know one of the things I realized was oh I like this so I could just do this for the next 50 years yeah and see (laughs) what happens (laughs) right and And what a playful thing Exactly, exactly. And yeah. so I, I paint maybe for half an hour most days. It's not a big, long, old thing. Yeah. It's a manageable amount of time. And I have a little A5 watercolour paper notebook and I just mm. fill it up with these tiny little beautiful things. I actually showed my son those trees you did um, yeah. that you put on Instagram because he had to draw trees for school and I said here's your inspo you're going to do a bit of this and I actually I thought of yesterday I sat down with some of their paints they've got these beautiful liquid watercolors and yeah. they are so playful just because they are um, it's not it doesn't feel rigid you know they just yeah. leak all over the place and and I thought of you I thought oh I think I could do this every day <laughs> sounds like well one of my do. closest friends has a nine-year old daughter and Mm. her and I have been hanging out a little bit we have a little expanded bubble okay this is just the two of them and um we've been hanging out and painting and just chatting about school and what's going on and whether there are dead tigers in tiger bread you know, these kind of nine-year-old conversations. And I'm, I'm a dead tiger. She's like, there's no way. Stop making fun of, of the brute. But it's it's that kind of playfulness and the fun of that and the sweetness of that, really, that is, um, you know, one of the joys of lockdown, one of the joys of this time. Absolutely. Yeah, that we would have been too rushed off our feet and <clears throat> not made space for that, not had yeah. time even think of it yeah. I love so much about how you talk about family and decisions around family for you um yeah. and I think uh, yeah I just really want to give more sort of air to that sometimes with people that I think these um, conversations are so restricted in terms of do we have a career and buy a house and get married and and do all of these things that are just so limiting I just feel like mm-hmm. if we're we're just thinking in this way this is your one life I mean that's my sort of belief this is your <laughs> this is your only time what are you going to do yeah. with this um and yeah I just really hope that these conversations are are soon more normalized I think absolutely you know and and I I'm filled with hope when I look at and I and I probably sound a lot older than I actually am, but when I look at kids these days who are just going, I don't really know what my gender is right now. Yeah. I don't know who I want to love, what my family construct is going to look like yet. Yeah. But I'm really open. Like mm-hmm. when I see that, there's a, um, a non-binary person on um Instagram that I follow, the Jeffrey Marsh, and they are just so like permission. It's a giant permission slip. Yes. Be who you are. Yeah. And they are so great at not like really challenging these these ideas mm. of what the rules actually are. Yeah. And you know, I think the reason I love them so much is that that has been the one truth that I found is that the things that the stories we tell ourselves about what the rules are. Mm are often created from just someone else's idea that may or may not be right for us yeah and I think when it comes to like how do you who do you want to love and what do you want your family to look like Mm -hmm. there are no rules yes they just aren't (laughs) and it's so liberating 
It can, it can feel, I think it can feel like liberation and it can feel like chaos too, right? Like there is that kind of like, what do we choose yeah. now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh no. But I think um, I'm with you. I think we have just one, one, one long, hopefully one long, lovely life. Mm-hmm. And the older I get, the more I realize that it really is just up to us. Mm-hmm. People will come round. Even the folks that you think there's no way that I'll be able to do this and still have them in my life, mm. I think you'd be surprised. Mm. Gosh, yeah, the stretchiness of it, that we are always more stretchy than we imagine. Absolutely. And, and we're more loved than we, we imagine, right? I think a lot of us tell ourselves stories about who we have to be in order to be accepted, to, to belong to another person, to be loved by that person. Mm. And, you know, in my experience, that's actually way more resilient and stretchy than we imagine. Mm. There is going to be so much more room in a relationship to disappoint them, to be angry with them, to have conflict, all of that. And I think the thing that I keep coming back to is, you know, can you repair like, can you teach, yeah. your, teach yourself skills in repairing those hurts and that we may cause or that we may, may be subject to or we participate in? But if you are willing to say, oh, you know what? We had that conversation. I know it was awkward for both of us. It got a bit heated, but here's mm-hmm. what I was trying to say or here's how I feel. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering if we can talk about this more. You know, like there is always going to be room for endless repair yeah. in those relationships that are, you know, really important to you. Yeah. I think Often I don't, I don't think we don't have the words. We don't know what to say. Yeah. We just know the awkwardness and the, the feeling that we've yeah. stumbled into something that is icky. Yeah. yeah. And we use so much of our energy trying to get away from that icky feeling. So to step into yeah. it feels really counterintuitive, I think. Um, and, yeah, I, and we preempt it, right? We like protect ourselves from so much conflict or rejection or um, that idea that somehow we're going to do something and that's going to mean it's over. Like we go into that kind of all or nothing place. Yes, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I think that's also why friendships for me are so important. And I've, I feel like I want to draw friendships into the idea of family sometimes. Definitely. I think sometimes this, um, this unit of family is so unhelpful. The way that we think about family is just within the walls. Um, and something about friendships are, are so much more expansive in the sense that we can play sometimes more easily. So I think people who struggle with conflict, it's actually sometimes easier to practice that in friendships um, where you can go home afterwards or have some space as opposed to with a partner. And I often say that when I'm working with couples around practice this somewhere else, practice this with relationships that are not less meaningful, but less um, that feel less dangerous to practice in. Um, I feel like sometimes our friendships are really um like elastic places you know that people seem more forgiving in them and they seem that they're often more generous and more vulnerable um I don't know just I I don't I can't really I love that that idea and I I think for some of us it can be the other way like the partner Mm. is the more flexible elastic kind of feeling relationship and the friendship feels a little more like maybe we're just finding our feet with it or we're not quite sure or so many women I know have been wounded by other women and friendships that end without any kind of proper Mm. closure or but I think it's 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 exactly what you're saying isn't it that wherever there is that sense of elastication in the relationship (laughs) it's got to be elastic for everyone (laughs) (laughs) but yeah wherever it feels like there's room to stretch and grow I think that becomes a bit of a that can become a playground mm. to just practice the yeah. stuff practice and play but no one ha- I think no one has the rule book that's the thing I keep coming back yeah. to is nobody can nobody can see or say what your specific relationship with this specific individual you know there's no script for that yeah it's absolutely. just a make it up as you go along show yeah. up as yourself be yeah. yourself let them see you mm. and chances are you're going to be absolutely fine Mm. I think that is it's one of those sort of leaping off the edge feelings for people that showing up and being vulnerable and being who you are can feel so Mm. terrifying um because I 
I mean, there's so many risks that go along with that. But actually, once you've just leapt, you realize that often, often the landing is so much softer than we imagine. Like with self-doubt is that we protect ourselves from all these imagined risks. Yeah. And, and often they're made up in our head. You know, they're not yeah. the reality of what will happen after. Um, well, and because we almost always go to a worst case scenario. Yeah. Exactly. That all yeah. or nothing kind of idea. But but yeah. actually, I, th- I love what you're saying, that that really the landing is so much softer, even when there is conflict. Yes. Yeah, that, exactly. That may, you may actually find, oh, but I get to just advocate for myself, for my opinion, yeah. for my preference. Yeah. And maybe that will be met with some, you know, pissed offness or yeah. a little bit of disappointment but actually the relationship has then just expanded to hold that it's a good thing yeah I, I watch our kids sometimes with their um conflicts and often I'm so I'm so sort of wild at how natural it can be that I think we're taught that conflict is such a terrible and bad place to be yeah. well I, I was like growing up conflict was just it was not good. (laughs) Don't be angry. Angry is not one of the things we do. Um, And I watch the fluidity with which kids can be angry with each other and just roar at each other's faces and say, um, I mean, my daughter can say really, really horrible things. She said to Harrison the other day that he was out of the family because he'd done something. And then sort of 10 minutes later, they were, um, back together and I just thought yeah they were back in (laughs) without (laughs) even an invitation was assumed amazing there's just something also about the stretchiness of that and obviously I don't think people should say awful things to each other but there was this um sort of assumption that I'm really I'm going to tell you the depths of this now and and then we'll be we'll both be okay and he was also durable in it because I said to him oh Emerson said quite a quite a rough thing to you earlier and he said oh she was just angry and I just wow. thought, oh, wow, you know, like just normalizing that feeling of anger mm. and that conflict is inevitable and actually an essential part of, of our relationships. Yeah. It, it just cannot be a relationship without conflict. We, yeah. It's not possible. We're different. Well, and it's not a real one if there's no conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's then it's two people mm. trying to superficially avoid anything real. <laughs> Sliding past each other. Yeah. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> oh Sas, I'm mindful of our time. Can I dive into three little things um, that I want to ask you? So firstly, I want to ask, do you have some like favorite poets that you are reading at the moment or, or, or reading that's topping <gasps> yes. you up? I'm reading... Um, my husband actually bought me Kate Bowers' pop book, uh, Some okay. Kind of Woman. Okay, I don't know. Um, she's an American poet. And I literally just found her on Instagram. Okay. <laughs> and, and I just really like her um, her poetry. And I we always give each other a list of things that we, oh, wow. we like rather yeah. than be disappointed. Oh, me too. Just give each other <laughs> the list. Here's the list. <laughs> me too. So, um, God damn it. I love her. She is very, it's very modern. It's very kind of real life. Um, Her, her um, way of talking about her relationship with her body is fascinating to me. Um, In what way? Just her openness or? Very open and very, like a real loving acceptance that this is a body that is Mm. real and has birthed a couple of kids. And, you know, like me, she's kind of been through the mill of like most of us through the mill of Mm. diet culture and come out the other Mm. side, as far as I can tell. And very much like, just be in wonder of it. Mm. Oh, I love that. I want to look out. Yeah. She's amazing. Okay. Yeah. She would be my recommendation. <laughs> I'm writing that one down. What um, What else are you, what are the other ways in which you're topping yourself up at the moment? Well, if you told me I'd be doing this a year ago, I would have said, no, you're very much mistaken. <laughs> but, um, but I have been cold water swimming. Oh, like wonderful. I think so many people in the UK have, have decided to do this. Yes. It is utterly bonkers if you think about it for more than a minute so I would say don't think about it just get your dogs <laughs> just on and get dive in. yeah oh. um but there's something it is physiologically utterly fascinating as an experience because you go into shock as you go into the water 
and you are very much aware of just how cold it is and that this is wrong and everything is telling you no, no, no. But within a minute or two, your body adjusts and it, and you just do not feel the cold. And when you get out of the water, you feel warm. Mm, almost burning hot. I've been doing this too. And it's, and it's mad. Like a burning feeling on your skin. Yeah. Yeah. And then there is that, that you have to kind of get dressed at that point because <laughs> in five minutes, the after drop is coming. And at that point, you're, you're going to be questioning all of your decisions for the last half an hour. <laughs> but, um, but there is something quite magical about it. And it's, it, for me, it is all about the presence of just being in my body in a body of water feels mm. quite magical. Mm. Um, but it's been a way that we can meet with friends and extended an extended friends circle. We've got a WhatsApp group of folks we know who like swimming. Oh, and so so no one ever goes alone. You just kind of send a yeah. message the day before and someone meets you there. Okay. Um, but it's been a way of being in contact with our loved ones at a, mm. at a distance that feels safe. Um, okay. Yeah, but yeah, and it, and it is like it. I think that the glow of it for me has been lasting for days and days afterwards. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I've also just started doing this this year. Um, so really recently, and I just relate to that feeling of presence that there can be no kind of bullshit around. <laughs> around right who around. you are <laughs> yeah. there's no space for it and it feels like yeah. such a connected thing to do with people as well because of that yeah. because you are just so in your body in that moment and nowhere else there's no plans or regrets mm. or anything else and I feel like it's been such a wonderful thing to do in friendships that yeah I go with a group of friends or so not now in lockdown well, but and you know I found um that there is a group of women and I think it started in the UK, but it may not, maybe a, a group of American women who started this. And they have a swimming club called the Blue Tits. Okay. I think I've and, heard of these, these ladies. And it's literally, they have chapters all over the world. It's all free to join and everything. Yeah. But you can get badges, right? So oh, if you wow. swim in phosphorescence, you can get your Sparkle Tits badge. <laughs> now, for me, that's like that's goals. goals. <laughs> Absolutely. How do we get to phosphorescence? I don't know. I think we need to find it somewhere. I remember it was in Life of Pi, the movie. Oh, yes. I've never really seen it before. There's some in Cape Town. Maybe we'll have to do an intercontinental. (laughs) We'll require travel. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it's so wonderful. I also like the community of swimming. I mean, I think it has exploded recently, but the community of swimming has been amazing. And every time we go, someone will chat to you and offer advice or say, like we met these these ladies. They must have been in their 70s. And you can see they, they've been doing this for, forever. Um, and they said, keep your hats on, girls. Don't go under um, yeah. and and watched us from the side. They said all these sort of tips and tricks, and I just love the um, the community of it that people are. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I just absolutely yeah. love that. I, and oh. you know, I I can't help but think that it is such a positive thing for women to be willing to just be cold in their bodies in yep. swimming togs and or swimming costumes, swimmers, whatever you call them. <laughs> in New Zealand we call them togs. Um, there is so much stigma around all of that. That's just such bullshit. Mm. But that a, an increasing number of women are saying, oh, I just want to be in the sea. I want to be in my body and I want to be <laughs> in the sea and bugger it. Yep. It's almost as if because we're not spending time with you know, out in the world as much, you know, Mm. because everyone is working from home. I don't know. I wonder if our kind of sense of selves, our resilience around that has allowed us to just give ourselves permission to things, to do things that we don't have to explain to Brenda from accounts, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we can just do it. We can just do it and just not not yeah, worry about what anyone thinks. I wonder. Yeah. It's not so much of that social kind of conscience around us, constantly yeah. hearing snippets of this and snippets of that. That's so well, interesting. Yeah, and I'm seeing like a lot of women who are saying things like, oh, I just, I, I'm just not wearing a bra because it's not comfortable for me or I'm not, I'm choosing not to wear makeup at the moment. Yeah. Or like there is a lot of that 
and and for dads to be at home with the kids. Oh, yeah, that's been and, really and sharing big deal. and that. It just mm. feels like all these stories around mm. the rules are yeah. being rewritten to suit each family, or, or mm. we're at least taking the opportunity to consider what needs to change here. How can we be mm. kinder to ourselves? What are we keeping? Yeah. yeah, I think that's been, and that's been one of the good things about this having taken such a long time is that yeah. those things are not quick to shift. Yeah. Um, so I yeah, do think I'm there is going to be long-term impacts on what we tolerate in terms of our workplaces. Oh, I hope I, so. I imagine for anyone who is living with a disability, mm. who has been told for years that it is impossible for them to, mm, to work, work remotely, more, yeah. work more flexibly, mm. and is now finding that actually the whole bloody workplace can do that, yeah. must be fuming. I, I yeah, know just I the sting am. of that, yeah, yeah. to say, yeah. but not for you. It was a choice. It was yeah. always a bloody choice. Yeah. And now we get to see what's possible and choose differently. And mm. yeah, I think it's, it is infuriating mm. that it has to come to this for the actual people that need to make different choices to be personally impacted. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I'm yeah. hopeful that this, that this means we get just so much more inclusivity and diversity around, mm. you know, how we construct our work teams and around our lives. I just feel like there is no need for this sort of worker bee lifestyle, um, which is hard and has no flexibility and no space for play. And, and I know there's like bundles of privilege in that, but I, I do think that the stretchiness will, will mean changes for everybody. I really, and, and really hope be, so. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. I think it, it will make changes slowly over time but I I would just also encourage like anyone who's telling themselves a story that somehow they're doing something wrong to really sit with maybe your soul isn't meant to thrive in a cubicle Mm -hmm. like like always think about the cultural narrative around this stuff Mm -hmm. and see if it fits your own like personal narrative your own personal stories Mm -hmm. because we're told just so much rubbish so and then much. we make it our fault because we're not living up to it. Mm. It just takes years to wade through all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And this is yeah. the excitement of this sort of collective movement is that yeah. it does speed up that process. You're not having to do that all on your own, that right. everyone is, yeah, is being stretchy around this. Yeah. Oh, Sass, it was so, so lovely to chat with you. It was just my best. <laughs> I brought a coffee and I haven't touched it, Julia. <laughs> Oh, this is so lovely. I can talk to you honestly. all day. Yeah, honestly. We'll just have a, a sass retreat. We'll just chatter away. <laughs> oh, thank Let's you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll be up for that. Oh, thanks so much for joining me. Um, is there anything you wanted to add or ask or, or feel um, that we've missed we've, out? Well, I, I guess one thing I would just say, if anyone's thinking, oh, stories and self-doubt and what am I telling myself? And I think both of us have talked a lot about the way that we've changed stories that we tell ourselves. Um, If you wanted to do that in a bit more of a structured way, I've got a free newsletter that goes out each Sunday morning with journal prompts around the self, I've called it the self-belief stories project. And it's all about just sitting with yourself for a set of, you know, a a little amount of time with a hot drink and Mm. just actually thinking what do I want my story to be around this and so we, mm. we just explore like a one sentence story and you get to just um, look at that for yourself it's just a self-inquiry exercise but the feedback I've been getting has been amazing and so encouraging because you never quite know when you stick these things out <laughs> how it's well. landing yeah <laughs> oh no it. Sus, <clears throat> excuse me it's absolutely beautiful and I think it's done in such a gentle way that doesn't feel I think some people find when you talk about journaling it could that you can see that everyone go rigid I think there's is people for and against journaling and I think something about this process and the way in which you lay it out for people is just so much more open and free and again just your own story around what you're going to make of it so yeah I really recommend that newsletter I think that was my intention is that it just 
it's not really about what you, you could just do the dishes or go for a walk and think about these things. Yeah, yeah. you have to sit down and write it down, write in your best handwriting. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's it more in. about sit with yourself, ask yourself some good questions, mm-hmm. and see what comes up for you. Yeah. Make some choices from a place of compassion and, and advocacy for what you actually want. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if anyone thinks hmm, that might be something worth checking out, uh, then you can sign up via the link in my Instagram profile. At Sass Petherick on Instagram, that's where I am most days. Well, thank you so much, Sass. What a pleasure. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. You can find Sass on Instagram at Sass Petherick, or you can listen to her wonderful podcast, Courage and Spice. I think it's just had a new revamp and she's released a, a new season. So go and check that out. I also encourage you to sign up to her Self-Belief Stories project link is in the show notes. It's a lovely, gentle, guided journaling session into all things self-doubt. All right, have a good week. I'll chat to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for being here today. If you'd like to get in touch, I'm on Instagram at grounded underscore families. You can send me a DM or a voice note to my DMs or an email. I'd so love to hear from you. Please do like, share and subscribe this podcast. It really, really helps to get the podcast out in front of more listeners. And I'll see you again next week. Take care. Bye.